perfectly set. He is, you know, polished. He is gentlemanly. He is perfect. He smells nice. Um, he is just a dazzling figure. Um, and then we're going, that's going to be my setup to slowly just tearing him down over the course of this entire story. Um, I've kind of described it as like, Jekyll is like a wonderful little nut and you are the monkey who wants to get into that perfect little nut and find the juicy innards inside. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon and join either the ITBR student or the ITBR professor level. Both levels of membership have a seven-day free trial. With the ITBR professor level, you also not only get access to all of our video episodes, like listening or watching Scream Part 2, you also get access to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia book clubs. The book clubs are going to each be a one-hour private Zoom. I'm hosting the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Mary DePippi's hosting the True Crime and Academia ones. So with the ITBR professor level, you get access to all of our video and audio episodes, plus our book clubs. And make sure you download the Patreon app on your phone for such an accessible, easy-to-use way to consume our content. Okay, can't wait to see you all on Patreon. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. And before you hear such an exciting episode, I want to remind you all that when I'm not here hosting the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, I am running my small business, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, where I am consulting with clients. It includes academic writing consulting, social media, podcast, and expanding your media footprint. So I have clients I'm working on graduate school writing with them. I can work on thesis writing, dissertation writing, essay advice, college admission essays, undergrad uh, college advice, graduate school advice. I also am working on a client's small business right now and expanding her social media footprint. I can work on how to create a podcast with you or how to expand your podcast audience. I also can just help you expand your media footprint in general. So if you're interested in my consulting, I first want to let you all know it is only $30 for the first hour that I work with you on consulting, and then I'll set up a package with you then. So you can email me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com, or you could go to our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash ivorytowerboilerroom, and there's a consulting option under mem memberships. You can pay the $30, and then I will reach out to you right away, and we'll set up a consultation. And then while you're on our Patreon, make sure you join the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and the True Crime and Academia Book Club. Every month, both myself and Mary are choosing books for our book club members to read. And we are actually polling our members on Patreon to see what books they want to read. And we're meeting with them the first week of each month. So if you want to join um, the book club each month, just make sure that you join on Patreon. That way I know who's joined and I can reach out to all of you and let you know when we're meeting on Zoom. Okay. So lots of things to do here in the ivory tower boiler room, and I can't wait to consult with you, join you for a book club discussion, and have you here listening to one of our podcast episodes. Okay, enjoy this episode.
Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited to be joined with today's gothic, horror thriller, young adult, all things in the graphic novel world. I am joined with Sage uh, Catunio. I was you got pronouncing your last name. I got it. Yay. I got hey. the name. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, Sage is a queer and mixed race Victorian horror nerd. Born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Oh, that'll be a fun talking point eventually. I just Ooh. love all things Southern California. Really? Uh, aesthetically. <laughs> uh, they are a director, writer, and storyboard artist in the animation industry and have previously worked on projects such as Gravity Falls, The Owl House, and Star vs. The Forces of Evil. The Glass Scientists will be their first published graphic novel. So yay, congratulations. That's so exciting. Um, you. And you can see more of their work at S-E-E-G-O-A-T-R-U-N.com. And then they'll plug their Twitter and Instagram at the end of the show. But I'm so excited to be joined with you, Sage, for such a Victorian Gothic-themed episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So what's so funny is I have this calendar on my desk. It's like this 365 day curious reader calendar. Mm -hmm. And it was as if it knew that we were about to meet because it was about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I think this is a good entryway into the glass scientists. Mm -hmm. Apparently so many people think that uh, Mary's Frankenstein um, actually has a doctor that it's Dr. Victor uh -huh. Frankenstein but he's never specified as a doctor. Like apparently she thought he was going to be a student and like an apprentice. So mm. it, it does interest me how these tales in the Gothic world and universe take off once they're on film and TV. Mm. Like mm -hmm. everyone says, oh, it's Dr. Frankenstein. And then I think young Frankenstein maybe just solidified <laughs> that yeah. element. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, what was your entryway? Because I know Frankenstein is a huge inspiration, as is, of course, mm -hmm. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But, you know, which came first for you in this universe? Yeah, and no, you're absolutely correct. They are both huge influences on me. Both of them appear in The Glass Scientist, which is a retelling of many classic Gothic science characters, such as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Dr. Frankenstein. Um, but I love that you're leading with this question of adaptation, because I think those two stories, possibly more than almost any other in literature, have been massively shaped um, in our pop culture understanding of them based on how they were adapted. Um, I think also the fact that, like, you know, they were both really, really popular adaptations in early film. I think, like, horror used to be, like, a really popular and successful genre, um, especially in, you know, the universal horror days, but also in the silent era before then. Um, I will say, like, Frankenstein is definitely one of those stories where people read the book and they're like really surprised, like, whoa, this is not what I was expecting at all. Um, like, you know, as you said, you know, he is not a doctor. He is, I, I think he is like 18 when he creates the monster. He is a student. Um, he's just, he's a kid. Um, and that, plus the entire storyline is very, a lot of it is told from the monster's perspective. It's very, in a way I feel like almost feels like more modern, more familiar to, us who are you know more used to seeing a more sympathetic take on these monsters you kind of more it has like almost a Guillermo del Toro vibe I want to say um mm -hmm. but you know it was written back in the early uh, early 19th century 
Um, but I'm not sure if that just wasn't a popular take in the early 20th century or if they just wanted something that was a little more sensationalized. Um, but our a lot of our con conception of Frankenstein, I think, is built by those early universal horror films, yep. which are very, very visually striking. I mean, I think that's what's really cool about your Frankensteins, your Jekyll and Hyde, is that they were really, really innovating in the filmmaking space back then. Um, I know that Frankenstein did a ton of stuff with really kind of forced perspective. The art direction is really cool and really iconic. Um, but it is, number one, it's updating it a lot. So it looks 1930s-ish as opposed to 19th century. So it doesn't feel, to me, it doesn't look like Victorian Gothic. It doesn't have like that super ornate vibe to it, number one. Um, and also like it definitely casts Frankenstein in what I think kind of solidified into that classic mad scientist aesthetic, you know, the cackling, wah ha ha you know, like all of my, my plans are coming to fruition. That's a very much an invention of the of the movies and I think it's that's a really fun aesthetic to play with but it's not like it's harder to play with more on a more psychological level so I think if you go back and you read those original books you're definitely going to get a much deeper and more interesting experience um though of course the movies are super fun <laughs> well and queer monstrosity always comes through um I have a friend Joseph Federico who's been on this podcast an episode's going to come out with him after our discussion and he draws so much queer inspiration, especially with closetedness. And I'm a huge fan. I love the Frankenstein story, but I actually prefer Dracula a little more because oh, I find I mean... Dracula much more of a queer themed mm. story about psychologically subversive and homoeroticism. I mean, when I taught that, Sage to my students, Dracula. Mm -hmm. Again, they were so surprised to see the origin of the mm -hmm. adaptation that it's almost all told in diaries and journals. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, it plays around with genre, Bram Stoker. He loves just going back and forth with perspectives. And, mm -hmm. but Bella Lugosi's Dracula is so homoerotic. And then I kind of think that later adaptations, just like Jekyll and Hyde, I mm -hmm. love the Jekyll and Hyde musical, but it's always interesting to me that when it gets too queer, when it gets too same-sex oriented, mm -hmm. they back away from it in our current day. It's like, we need oh, yeah. a woman. Like, we need a love mm -hmm. interest. We need this um, romance. And they mm -hmm. really can't see the romance between, you know, whether it be a queer coupling. And I find that fascinating. But all of that's to say, like, where do you fall in the line of queer monstrosity and themes like that? Um, I definitely, I think that's one of the reasons I'm most drawn to monster stories as well. Um, shoot, I feel like you brought up so many points that I wanted to speak on in that space. Um, so the first thing I thought of, um, this is from, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, with Red Letter Media, that Red Letter Media, they do um, reviews of like pop culture stuff. They did a, some famous reviews of like Star Trek and Star Wars back in the day. Um, there was... I think a review of the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek. And of course, Star Trek is kind of one of its most, its most famous pairing is Kirk and Spock, right? Like mm -hmm. decade, like arguably the, the creator of the slash genre as a thing, um, the power of that one particular ship. Um, and he noted how the J.J. Abrams seemed to very intentionally create female love interests for both Spock and Kirk, um, almost as if out of this kind of like, this, I, I mean, I doubt he was even really consciously thinking of this in his straight man brain of just like, we can't have people think that they're gay. 
So we have to make sure that we have at least one scene of like a man showing clear attraction for a woman. Um, and he called that um, giving Spock a case of the not gays, um, which is a term that I think about a lot where it's like, there are a lot of female characters out there whose sole job is to reassure a presumed straight male audience that the main character is not gay. Mm. Um, and the, this whole theory rests on the assumption that bisexuality doesn't exist, of course. <laughs> um, but that is so the case with Jekyll and Hyde in particular, that's certainly the story that I'm the most familiar with. Um, I really liked um, that essay that you linked me to, um, Dr. Jekyll's Closet, um, which um, for, I guess, for listeners is basically talking about exactly the homoerotic subtext of Jekyll and Hyde, um, which I loved so much. I feel like, because when I was first getting into the story of Jekyll and Hyde, I was like in high school and I was super closeted back then. And like, I was the person who wanted a case of the not gays, you know? Um, I very much wanted reassurance that my favorite TV characters who I related to were not gay because that would be bad. Um, specifically, the character that I really wanted not to be gay was and was um, Elliot Page as Juno. And I was like, that Elliot, I mean, wouldn't would have said Elliot Page, you know, like that, yeah. that person, I love that they're straight because I like that person, I relate to that person. And if they're straight, that means I'm straight too. Um, anyway, sorry if that was a tangent, but- um, <laughs> Yeah, no. Um, yeah. All's good. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. Um, but I was re I was voracious for more information about the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because I loved it so much. And I felt like I kept running across a lot of essays that were like, you know, Dr. Jekyll is totally, he's like, that's like super gay, right? And I'm like, no, it's not. There's no gay people in that story. What are you talking about? Um, eventually, I did come out a couple of years later. Suddenly I was very interested in those homoerotic readings of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and I couldn't find them. Um, I don't know if I was Googling them wrong. And a couple of years ago, I went on a podcast to also talk about one of the adaptations of Jekyll and Hyde. And I was like, oh, you're gonna love this. Um, it's so gay. It's so, it's like, he's, he's such a gay story. There's so much subtext. And the host watched it. And it was incidentally, it was, I think the 1931 um, Frederick Marsh adaptation which is one of the most famous ones um kind of sets a lot of the standard for what an adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde is and she watched it and was like um that most of the plot revolves around him either trying to you know save his you know his engagement with this woman or going after this other woman it, it doesn't seem very gay to me and the the reason for that is that since pretty much in its inception from when it was first adapted, I think it was first adapted in 1887, I want to say for stage. Um, the problem with Jekyll and Hyde is that it doesn't have much of an A plot, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. The original novella really, really depends on the audience not knowing that Dr. Jekyll is Mr. Hyde. Um, yeah. You know, I think most people's first experience reading the story is they get to the end, they're like, that's it. Um, cause it does mm -hmm. kind of like, it, it basically ends like, so this is my story. This is who I am. I'm dead now. Um, spoiler alert for, you know, 140 year old book. Um, and so understandably most adaptations want to add more plot. They want to add more plot points to the mm -hmm. story. Um, and the tradition has been love interests, specifically a love triangle and almost the, the vast majority of stories add two female love interests for Dr. Jekyll and just like, Therefore, take what you know. I, I would 
agree with, you know, the um, that it is a fundamentally it's it's a pretty queer story and make it just aggressively straight. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's been the vast majority of adaptations so far. Yeah, well, and Sage is talking about the literary feminist critic Elaine Showalter, which I still think is one of my favorite um, theoretical queer readings of Jekyll and Hyde. I think also um, the critic Jack Halberstam might have a take on Jekyll and Hyde, but I love everything you're saying, Sage. I think that what does fascinate me, even with like, thank you for that origin of how we get the love triangle. But in Victorian literature and Gothic tales, it's actually usually not a man and two women. It's usually a woman who's being used as a pawn between two men in like the Victorian novel tradition. So I even find it interesting that it's two women who like they themselves could kind of be battling for each other's affection. But right. So I'm assuming you've seen the musical. Like, or oh, even yeah. on YouTube, mm-hmm. you've seen. Oh, yeah, I've seen <laughs> okay, it. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, speak yeah. to that. If I can uh, speak to that briefly, what I think is interesting is that I think in almost all adaptations, the women never meet. It is, mm-hmm. it might still not pass the Bechdel test, um, most adaptations. Um, it is not about two women competing for Miss for Jekyll and Hyde. I feel like typically you have, you have a good girl character, and I think the essay brings this up. You have a good girl who is, you know, his aristocratic fiance, and then the bad girl who's often like, you know, a lower class, like a dancer at a club or a, or a barmaid or something. Yeah, she's and an escort in the musical. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's usually that the women are there to kind of symbolize his choice of, you know, Jekyll's world versus Hyde's world, I think. But of course, they are also romantic. You know, he's attracted to them in theory. So <laughs> that there's that aspect, too. Well, and I love that song, though, In His Eyes. Like, that's when you get both women on stage. Mm-hmm. And um, I really love, even though there's so much laughing or mocking about um, David Hasselhoff. Thank you, Hasselhoff, <laughs> who, you know, the German audience absolutely has fawned over. I like David mm-hmm. Hasselhoff. Um, mm-hmm. But the two women who are in that production are just incredible. And... Mm-hmm. What is interesting, though, is you're right. Even though they're in that song together as a power duet mm-hmm. and ballad, they're not actually physically in the same space. They're just thinking of who, you know, Jekyll and then Hyde are in their world. But mm-hmm. something that I love so much you brought up about um, Stevenson's novella is, you know, it's not even Jekyll and Hyde. It's called The Strange Case. And mm-hmm. It's like you're trying as an audience member to put your detective hat on, almost Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes-esque, and Mm -hmm. think, oh, wait, who is Jekyll? Like, what's the psychological nuance behind it? And you Mm -hmm. really think that these are two separate characters. And Mm -hmm. I think when you deal with a lot of icy queer gothic Victorian tales, they're very Mm -hmm. hard to adapt. Like, I'm thinking of Dorian Gray, Mm -hmm. because it's so psychological. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it's the hardest part about horror in general is a Mm -hmm. lot of it needs to happen when it's um, a novel. It's in your imagination as the reader. Like, a lot of it is not supposed to be explicit or didactic. This is supposed to be interpreted by you, Sage, differently than I interpret it, right? We're supposed to come to different understandings. Like, Dorian, 
is completely mentally um like you could interpret him as having a whole breakdown over his beauty but also who are these men fawning over him uh -huh. and what part are they playing in this recipe of causing him distress right but some people might blame dorian for being so into his own egotistical narcissism but others might blame the older men for trying to corrupt him right it's mm -hmm. like that way with jekyll and hyde yeah and i think there's also like in terms of adaptation and why these kinds of stories are often difficult is i think the victorian sensibility is so so different from I think what you, what you associate like mainstream movie going culture. You know, I think there was an attempt a few years ago um, to kind of do like a gothic horror extended universe called the dark universe uh, that Universal was doing. They got like one movie deep, deep and they're like, nah. Um, where I think, you know, when it comes to adapting these things, there is a tendency, again, to think of the straight male audience, to think of like what is going to turn off the, you know, the typical moviegoer who is never, unfortunately, just population wise is not going to be like the queer viewer as much. And so I think it's off like Gothic stories are often engaging with this more beautiful sense of masculinity. Certainly Dorian Gray is kind of the most extreme version of that. Um, or, you know, I think Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a story with of all boys initially. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Dracula with this very kind of like queer threatening, this kind of more threatening queerness. Um, I think there is a desire on the part of Hollywood to be like, okay, how do we take that and reassure the audience that that is not a threat and that we're not taking this male beauty too seriously and that we're staying within, you know, what middle America is comfortable with. And I think as a result, unless that fundamentally changes, but I don't, which I don't see it changing in the near future anyway, when you're dealing with, you know, massive Hollywood blockbusters, it's just a hard sell to have those kinds of main characters front and center. But I think it's also what's so great about going back and reading those books, you know? Well, and I do really love, though, the Bram Stoker's Dracula from the 90s with Winona. Yeah, well, Winona Ryder was in Frankenstein and... Mm -hmm. Everywhere. Winona mm -hmm. Ryder, again, is going to be back in Beetlejuice, too. She's just so good, in my opinion, about the gothic mm -hmm. genre. She does mm -hmm. a great job in it. Um, but it's not male homoeroticism that I find really palpable in Coppola's mm -hmm. version. It's actually female homoeroticism between the, vamp the vampire sisters. Like, they're... Mm -hmm. It's almost, in my opinion, a lesbian fantasy of the male audience. Like, oh, look, their women are all kissing. And Jonathan yeah. is like, it's that whole bedroom scene. And they're yeah. rising out. And he thinks that, um, you know, they're there for his pleasure. And he can consume mm -hmm. each of them. I mean, it is an interesting cinematic scene, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's probably my favorite scene that's done in the movie. But, um, yeah, even Lucy... Um, who I'm just realizing Lucy's actually in Dracula and the Jekyll and Hyde adaptation in the musical. Mm -hmm. Lucy is like always, for some reason, her name gets associated. Name. Mm -hmm. Yes, but she yeah. gets always associated with libidinal desire. I don't know why. Um, mm -hmm. But I think Lucy's the most fascinating in Dracula and like that, mm -hmm. like what she's supposed to be as that good Victorian woman with domesticity and marriage. But remember, mm -hmm. she wants to marry all these different suitors and she even jokes if I could marry all of you I would and she almost wants this polyamorous situation and then guess mm -hmm. what happens they have to inject her with all this blood and it is very 
orgiastical and some have even read that scene in terms of a soul like it's a very there's a lot happening with lucy but i do think that something that i'm so drawn with how you're interpreting jekyll and hyde is you do you see two separate characters because the, the way you're constructing your graphic novel it is fascinating to see what you're doing with each foil so i'd love yeah. if you could explain that yeah, um, I think my approach to Jekyll and Hyde and their psychology is kind of central to why I wanted to write this story in the first place. And I know we're also going to be talking about um, talk to me and like possession as a concept. Um, I actually see Jekyll and Hyde as a little bit of a contrast to stories of possession to being, you know, taken over by an outside force. I would argue that what makes the concept of Jekyll and Hyde so so compelling is that Hyde really is just a part of Jekyll. Um, and I think the novella is actually pretty, um, fairly hardline about this, that Jekyll almost has like a mathematical equation of how he sees himself. Like, I believe I am, I would estimate I'm about 90% good, 10% evil. Maybe that's a generous, you know, generous assumption on his part, um, but that's how he sees him. Um, and for him, the formula was about kind of splitting those things in two. And the formula is actually a little bit, a little bit of a failure actually his original intention was like okay i'm gonna i believe that humanity each human being is fundamentally two people you are the good side and the bad side mm -hmm. um neither of them he actually what is interesting he doesn't see like the bad side of like evil like or he's not trying to get rid of it Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org, that's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe, so on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag 
the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR, and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. Are you afraid of the dark? <laughs> Sorry, I had to, everyone. It's Dr. Andrew Rimby. Happy spooky season and gothic and horror. Just all the vibes. I am so excited to talk about Broadview Press, who you might know helps sponsor our podcast. They're an independent publisher in the humanities since 1985. Did you know they have so many horror novels that you need to get your hands on? They have Frankenstein, of course, by Mary Shelley. They have Dracula by Bram Stoker, one of my favorites. They have The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, Edgar Allan Poe's Poetry and Tales. Oh, they just have so many gothic novels that you all need to soak your teeth into. Bob your teeth into <laughs> some kind of Halloween metaphor is appropriate there. They also have academic books like Dr. Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock's The Mad Scientist Guide to Composition. So if you're a writing professor out there, you need to get your hands on that. And they also have a gift package called Mystery Horror Sensation, which if you don't know what to choose, just choose the Mystery Horror Sensation gift package. Just a reminder, you get 20% off on broadviewpress.com, link in our show notes. Just use the code Ivory Tower, all lowercase. Ivory Tower, 20% off all your books on broadviewpress.com, all of them. I can't wait for you all to hear our next Broadview Press guest. It's coming in November. And definitely when you buy one of their horror or gothic novels, or books, just make sure you tag us on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and tag them too at Broadview Press. I know they'll love to share it. Okay, everyone, be careful if you're reading in the dark. I don't want you to get too scared. Turn a light on. Bye, everyone. Um, a lot of adaptations will change it. Like, oh, he's this very saintly man. He wants to rid the world of evil. Nope, that is not him. He is like, yo. I like to be a good boy sometimes. Sometimes I like to be a bad boy. What I don't like is that the good boy judges the bad boy and the bad boy feels judged by the good boy. So if I just split those two right down the middle, I create two me's that are totally separate, then they can go each go their, each their own ways um, and won't bother each other anymore. That was his original intention. Um, what he ends up with is basically just the bad part isolated. Mm. Um, and that is Mr. Hyde. And he's kind of like, well, this is an ideal, but it's close enough, basically. He just kind of runs with it. Um, one, one aspect that I think is important is that Jekyll himself has not become the good boy only. Um, they're using very academic terms here. <laughs> um, Jekyll is still fully both the good and the bad. So it's like an imperfect Jekyll versus like this perfectly evil Hyde. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so he's kind of forced to to grapple with and contend with this version of himself that is kind of like isolated and kind of concentrated nastiness in a way. Um, yeah. But it is very much himself and it's not something that he ever considers, you know, expelling or getting rid of or exercising because I think he acknowledges, you know, even in his worst moments like, yo, this is just a part of me and I got to deal with it somehow. Um, and so for me, that aspect of like, they are truly one and the same is really, really important and what's the most interesting part of that story.
Yeah. Well, we're going to get into haunting and possession because I gave Sage a homework assignment. We both watched Ooh. Talk to Me, which I have a lot to say about. But um, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts. But before that, so do you subscribe then to the very Sigmund Freudian psychoanalytic interpretations that come about of mm -hmm. id, ego, super ego, like our libidinal hidden repressed desires are really hide inside of ourselves. And the more ego. Uh, again, I don't want to I don't want to ascribe saintly martyr characteristics because mm -hmm. that's not what the ego well the super ego the ego is like our everyday thinking the super ego yeah. is that heightened almost self-actualization like you can never achieve the top of the cliff but the top getting to the top of the cliff but you're always trying to reach it mm -hmm. um in terms of ethics so you know do you think that that theory really does hold in even how you're approaching Jekyll and Hyde I mean I think I'm hesitant to invoke Freud because I mean not being a psychology student myself my vague understanding is that like oh like we like modern day psychologists don't like assume that everything Freud said was right and so like I'm a little bit hesitant to be like id super ego ego um but what that said it does map like fairly cleanly I would say like within that paradigm like Hyde is you know the kind of the base desires um the more you know animal instinct uh slash anything that you think is not appropriate for for polite society um mm. anything that you are trying to hide and cut literally <laughs> hide and cover up <laughs> good fun good fun um and then jekyll is you know the ego slash um you know the again the whole person um one of one aspect of which is whose job is to repress that hide self mm. um so i think like that's that's how i kind of break it down um and there's a part in The Glass Scientist um, that will come in in volume two where um, we start to really see the effects of Jekyll having kind of forcibly um, locked Hyde away entirely. Um, at the beginning of the story, he is letting Hyde roam free. They're both having a good time. Then Hyde does something really very much not well advised, uh, which causes Jekyll to be like, yo, I'm done with you. You are in timeout. Um, Hyde does not take this well. Um, and he starts to act out and kind of like, unleash all of these nightmares on to Jekyll and to mm -hmm. me what that was about was that I feel like when you're repressing an aspect of yourself like it's not just gonna just go away like there are going to be like there's a lot of natural stress responses that come from masking that come from repression um, that will inevitably wreak havoc on your mental health will wreak havoc on your physical health um, so that's kind of where that logic was coming from psychologically well, and so many people out there, Sage, they forget, just like what I was saying about Dracula's storyline mm -hmm. and the diary and journal entries, uh, or Frankenstein, the misnomer of him being a doctor in the original mm -hmm. text. The original text of Jekyll and Hyde, Utterson is our storyteller, mm -hmm. and he's a lawyer. So you have like this lawyer, then doctor, mm -hmm. like in mm -hmm. You know, Jekyll playing around with um, his scientific experiments. And I find that the Victorian period is so ripe of exploring these white collar professions, like the lawyer mm -hmm. compared to the doctor. And, um, you know, how do you see the Victorian period being so um, robust in terms of like these new categories? Because they were like new industrial, like new corporate kind of ways of seeing yourself in terms of mm -hmm. sexual orientation too. Like this is the birth of mm -hmm. the homosexual is the mm -hmm. Victorian period. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's what kind of drew me to the Victorian era in general. Um, I feel like so many concepts that we now kind of take for granted, um, whether that be, you know, our concept of what what queerness is, like what the labels are, or, you know, like what modern concepts of what a job is, or I, I'm particularly interested in like medical history, you know, most mm. things, whether it comes from, you know, like how germs happen, um, how to <laughs> do surgery in ways that won't instantly kill people, um, those, those kind of basic things, which again, are so many of us would be dead without them. Um, or, you know, in the case of, you know, modern gender roles, so much of us would be better off without them, um, where we now take them as kind of like defaults of like, oh, this is how the world has always been. Really, most of them are like a little over 100 years old, and they were born during this very particular time, which was on the cusp of modernity is what I feel like it was. Um, I like to describe the Victorian era as an era of modern scientific advancements before the era of modern um, safety regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing which I think is so fun, which I hope um, a lot of the, the humor of the glass scientist comes from is just like, I feel like science when not done safely is very interesting and incredibly dangerous. Um, you know, like people, you know, when, when aeronauts, aeronauts were first invented, um, you know, people going up, up in hot air balloons, um, they, you know, they figured out how to have sex in those things before they figured out how to steer them, you know, things like that. Just like, um, one of the most dangerous professions was being a baker. Like those things, you were getting just like horrible stuff in your lungs constantly. People would lock their employees in because there was no, no unions. Um, people, things were exploding. Um, they were giving, you know, arsenic to, it was arsenic to babies, it was some like cocaine or morphine. They were giving everything to everybody, to babies. Um, and again, as a result, I would never want to live there. It is very interesting to write about. There's a lot of there's a lot of potential for gags in there, um, but it is just I think such an interesting, almost kind of funhouse mirror to our modern world in so many ways. Um, and sorry, getting back to your original point of like professions and you know queerness, um, I'm really really fascinated with the ways that queer people um, in all of history, but I think especially the Victorian era because it was this era of change, um, how they perceived themselves, um, how they perceived of their identities. I know that for a long time, like being gay, you, you weren't, you, being gay wasn't a thing that you are, it was an activity that you did basically. Um, and so there was a time in which it switched to being like, oh no, I am gay as opposed to well, I do gay things, you know? Yeah, identitarian. You're talking mm-hmm. about identity yeah. based thinking of ourselves and mm-hmm. yeah. Well, do you think that, you know, this is your opinion, but I feel that it speaks to what you do in The Glass Scientist. Do you think that there's a, I always find that the 19th century, why I'm so drawn to it in my writing, scholarship, what have you, is because it's, like you said, on the cusp of something, of modernity. It's neither um, a past system and neither the future. It's Mm -hmm. an experiment period. And, you know, and it is kind of, it is freeing for some people, especially um, men who are able-bodied and white and (laughs) um, might be doing queer things that they still are getting married. And you see this with um, Oscar Wilde even, right? Had had a wife. Um, But 
it does open the door for that. But it also, you know, does restrict women and does restrict, mm -hmm. you know, those who are not wealthy, like those mm -hmm. who were the lower working class had a lot of difficulties. So I think it's interesting to see like a Dr. Jekyll was living a really high lifestyle. Like yeah. he would be doing fine engaging in same sex activity, except he couldn't, you know, marry or have that identity thinking about himself. So how do you feel about this tug of war that's going on with sexuality in the period? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think um, obviously it, it did open up a very kind of small window if you happen to fit into that very kind of narrow identity space. And of course, you know, class always opens up, you know, more freedom than someone in the lower class classes would. Um, but of course, you know, in the case of, you know, your Oscar Wilde, et cetera, it obviously came with a huge amount of risk. Um, and one thing, like, I don't have like a solid answer for, I wish I could do more research on this, where I think, you know, the, the categorization of, you know, of properly labeling and categorizing these, you know, these uh, criminal acts of, you know, of, of queerness, um, how on the one hand, it was leading us toward, you know, what eventually would become modern day labels, but functionally were, you know, they were descriptions for crimes, you know, like a lot of our, lot, I mean, they, people talk about, you know, like, you know, is queer a slur, is all this, da, 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 all, what is reclaimed, what is not. Um, there's really no term for queerness that wasn't originally negative, you know? Um, and I think the Victorian era, again, really, really shows that because they were so into categorizing things and kind of making things scientific for questionable reasons. And of course, you know, queerness being what not by no means the only thing that was categorized badly. This, this is, of course, the same age as, you know, phrenology and scientific mm -hmm. racism and, you know, the beginning of eugenics. Um, get, 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 let's get even darker in this subject. Um, yeah, but, I was like, are we going into Darwinism oh right now? I'm sorry. Um, no, go, go for it. Better you like than a, me right now. I have like a side rant of just like, it bothers me. I feel like a lot of like high, like fantasy writers and people in that kind of more speculative space desperately need to learn about the history of eugenics because they keep accidentally writing eugenics into their stuff. I mean, like Thanos and the whole like, you know, finger snap situation. There's there's just so many things where like, people don't know, like, no, what you think of as like, oh, this is a reasonable solution to a modern problem is actually, like, nope, the Nazis tried that. You know, like there's, anyway. <laughs> so um, I feel like there's just, I don't know, there's so many interesting things in how the Victorian era was trying to take this more scientific and more separate spheres or, you know, separate categories for everything. Um, and they encountered a lot of very dangerous pitfalls, which hurt a ton of people. And I feel like it's really, really helpful to learn about that stuff. Cause like, I didn't learn about, you know, about the history of queerness growing up. You know, I didn't learn about um, separate spheres, which is, is specifically the belief that men are, men and women should exist in separate spheres. Um, the women should ex exist at home and men should exist in the workplace um, or in the public sphere. And, you know, how that, how these old concepts, we don't use that exact terminology now, but the ideas are still here and they're very pernicious. You know, it comes into, you know, debates about trans bathroom bills has has echoes of separate spheres in it um there's there are so many things from that era which i feel like are so relevant and i feel like if we would just learn that and learn the lessons from that we could avoid so much 
in the modern world. Yes, learn the history. And well, in terms that are really prevalent, um, that I feel speak to what you're saying here, Sage, is natural and unnatural, right? I mean, mm. I think even if you look in Jekyll and Hyde or any of these Gothic Victorian texts, like mm -hmm. everyone out there, see how many times unnatural is mentioned. It's mm -hmm. all over, you know, Frankenstein. Um, it's mm -hmm. all over. I mean, Frankenstein is called, the subtitle is the modern Promethe Prometheus, which, mm -hmm. right, Prometheus that does not end well in ancient Greek mythology. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a whole explosive element to Prometheus, mm -hmm. right? It's something unnatural to divinity, to God. Mm -hmm. And like, that's also with Jekyll. He wants mm -hmm. to do something that some could see as unnatural to the science world or, right? Dracula is not a natural character in this Victorian mm -hmm. sense of drinking blood. Um, mm -hmm. And what I'm curious about is, like, how do you weigh in on this, the binary system that you've even posited about what they were thinking about gender ideology, but even natural versus unnatural, or I'm wearing a Wicked sweatshirt right now, mm -hmm. right? Wicked's whole play, um, play on the Wizard of Oz tale. And mm. I've had Gregory Maguire on this podcast to talk about Wicked, which was incredible because wow. he even spoke to like what inspired him was that binary thinking of the wicked witch compared to the good witch and things are not that simple and mm -hmm. again but that's so part of current thinking is what's good and evil it's mm -hmm. it's always this splitting so what's going on sage yeah i mean like i i am always drawn specifically to stories that are about kind of you know queering the boundaries between any kind of binary whether that be you know i think in the way like you know good and evil has this very kind of like like melodramatic vibe to it to me that's a stand-in for you know is that man or woman is that straight or gay is that you know white non-white um and because like i'm I, i'm someone as you know even in my bio that i am of many different identities and i don't fit into any one of them properly you know i think from an early age i think a lot of my perspective was kind of built around the fact uh, growing up half Japanese specifically um, and coming from, you know, a mom who was full uh, sansei, so third generation, but full, uh, full blooded Japanese. Um, but having moved away from kind of her, her hometown, um, she was from Oakland originally, where there was, you know, a, a very, very robust, um, very long standing Japanese American population um, to Los Angeles, where, you know, there is obviously there's also a very large population, but um, she was more moving in a different sphere in that space. And so when I grew up, um, I didn't grow up around a, a, a ton of Japanese Americans. And my mom was always very afraid that like, oh, you're going to be separate from your identity. So she specifically signed me up. Um, it's, it's a long story how this came about. We, we basically, she basically managed to create an all Japanese American Girl Scout troop <laughs> to make sure that I would um, have a connection to that heritage, um, which is fantastic on the one hand, on the other hand, I was always very aware of like, oh, this is not natural in a way. Like this didn't come about just by the natural way that I am. It had to be something that I was introduced to. It was an environment that had to be created. And then I was placed into it. Um, I don't, which always gave me this kind of complex of like, oh, I'm not really Japanese. I'm just, you know, I'm fake or I have to, you know, do this extra thing to really belong. And so... I've always identified with characters who don't quite fit into any one label, you know? 
Um, and that to me is what drew me to Dr. Jekyll is that again, he's not a perfectly good person who wants to rid the world of evil. He is a fundamentally messy, complex person who is doing this wildly ill-advised thing in an attempt to make two people who fit nicely into their little boxes. <laughs> LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Hi, did I mention that it's spooky season? This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and guess what? I have so many Halloween and fall designs and crafts in my apartment. And guess what? There is a person who's made me so many Halloween horror fall themed items. And her name is Mandy Bengal. She owns Mandy Made It, a craft crochet company. So Mandy talked to me and said, Andrew, I want everyone out there to know that if they mention ITBR and that they heard my ad, that I will give them a free ITBR t-shirt. So make sure you mention ITBR. An order from Mandy, crocheted pumpkins, that she actually is using cinnamon sticks as the stem, which is a brilliant idea. How cozy. And also filling the pumpkins with potpourri. I already want to wrap myself in a blanket. She has Halloween keychains, other Halloween crochet designs. So how can you reach out to her? Go to her Facebook or Instagram at Mandy Made It. Reach out to her. She will ship items out to you. If you live in the South New Jersey, Philly area, she'll arrange to have you either pick it up or deliver it to you. So Mandy just makes such beautiful crocheted items. And I'm so happy that she supports the podcast. I've known Mandy since I was a child. We were in theater camp together. That's how I met Mary. So the three of us have known each other a long time. Okay, head over to Mandy Made It for your handmade crocheted items for this Halloween and fall. Yeah, and it's so secret and subversive, submerged, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's the basement activity. I just always find it so interesting. I don't know. Have you ever read Henry James's short story, The Beast in the Jungle? No, I haven't. Oh, about okay. It. Everyone out there, including you, Sage, okay. should read it because it's very, mm -hmm. 
it reminds me of Jekyll and Hyde in the sense of there's some closeted secret that is not revealed. And like, that's all I'll tell you, but it's just, again, it's like very distant in time when this is written. It, it, it's so interesting how cultured latches onto a similar, in my opinion, artistic energy. Like mm. the theme is all connected. Like even what's happening right now in the Gothic world, like let's do our transition to haunting because something is happening right now. I have never seen so much appetite and thirst for demonic possession, exorcism. Like there's something really psychologically happening with mm. all of the horror horror world right now. Um, like I wonder what it is because we have the new exorcist, we have um, the nun too, we have American Horror Story, I'm watching Delicate, that's even doing a lot of psychological thinking about fertility. Um, and then we have Talk To Me, which, I think Talk to Me is actually a little different than these other exorcist. Like, I wouldn't say it's an exorcist text. Mm -hmm. I, I would say it's more of an unraveling psychological, almost the sixth sense. I don't know why, but the sixth sense kept mm -hmm. speaking to me when I was watching this movie. Like, mm -hmm. or the Haunting of Hill House, if you saw that um, Haunting of Hill House series. Okay, wait, so there's two of them. There's The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, I, th I saw Bly Manor. Is that okay? I didn't see that. All? Okay, <laughs> so we, we're, yeah. on, we're on different sides of hauntings here, but um, I did love Bly Manor, so I think it's the same dude. Yeah, well, that's based on Henry James's um, right. Turn, of the Turn of the Screw. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it's by the same director, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so I've of those, I have only heard, I've only watched um, Talk to Me so far. Um, so I can, I can speak to that one now, but I mean, I'd love to hear like, how, how, how do you feel it's different from the other ones in terms of possession stories? Well, because it's not related to religiosity, mm. like everything else is related okay. around the devil, like mm -hmm. the demon or mm. Christian scripture. Like mm -hmm. the exorcist is, um, priest has to come in to do the exorcism. None too is set in a, um, there's literally a nunnery and yeah. mm -hmm. they know that they have to like go in and try to exercise the nun's demonic spirit. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I'm going to, for everyone out there, don't worry, there are going to be episodes deep diving those films, which is why I brought them up. But Sages, we're going into Talk to Me, which, yeah, mm -hmm. that, so that's how I see it's different. It's mm -hmm. against, it's not okay. a religious subtext necessarily right. it's like a yeah. seance medium like you don't know where the hand comes from mm -hmm. and talk yeah. to me yeah but i definitely you definitely get a more vibe it definitely feels more modern it feels more secular absolutely mm -hmm. i mean it's funny like i i am catholic and so like there's a part of me like watching talk to me and be like catholics would not get into this situation it would not fuck with this like come on like like why would you why are you doing this there's a very easy solution simply do not if like if there are demons i do not go there I do not mess with this, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a there's a superstition which I think sometimes pays off, at least if you're a character in one of these movies, you know. Yeah, well, and people are actually saying, "Talk to me." They were saying it's very in line with Midsummer and Hereditary, which I've seen both. I thought mm -hmm. Midsummer was incredible, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I will say, "Talk to me" was probably my favorite horror movie 
Uh-huh. And again, horror could be questionable, but thriller, psychological mm-hmm. thriller movie in the last 20 years. I thought, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it really worked well because of our character, Mia's grief. I thought mm-hmm. Mia's grief was a good through line. And that's why, yeah. like, I urge everyone to watch mm-hmm. The Haunting of Hill House because it's all mm-hmm. about a family's grief. And when grief is the linchpin, It allows for a lot of hallucinations. Like, Mm. it can really question who the narrator is. Like, Mia, Mm -hmm. right? Weren't you thinking, Sage? Or was this just me? I'm like, wait. Is Mia just imagining everything? Like, is everything that we've seen all just a psychological breakdown of her mother's death? Like, even the ending. Mm. I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending, but, like, even when she's in the hospital at the end, I'm like, wait. like. Was this hand even there? Like, mm-hmm. were were these other characters even being possessed by, or not possessed, but were they taken over by spirits? Because I was questioning everything at the end. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I mean, I think for me, I it never occurred to me that the entire thing might be a hallucination. I think if only, if anything, for the eye scene, like you're not faking that. Like that's that's not something up. I hope I hope that only is possible when a demon possesses you. Um, I definitely. Yeah. Um, that was a lot, <laughs> but that was, oh um, yeah. With the little, with the teen, the, um, the brother. Oh my gosh. That scene. Yeah. That was a lot. Um, I definitely like, I think number one thing, I stuff don't love that had to cover, had to cover yeah. quick question. Does he get the eye out? Can you just tell me like, did you watch that scene like fully? Cause like I was, yeah. I was hiding. They never really show him getting his eye out of his socket. Okay. So I don't, I okay. think they saved the eye. I think they from what we see in the like, hospital, they do yeah, say kind of looked okay. Yeah, sorry, tangent. I just like I need to know. Yeah, no, like, no. I'm like the person where like you know they have that sight of like does the dog die? Um, I'm like that. But like, is the person's eye okay? <laughs> like, I don't care about the dog. The dog is fictional. The eye thing, I can't look past. Anyway, um, yeah. I feel like what I definitely thought they were playing around a lot with was this idea of this unreliable narrator, for mm-hmm. sure, or like. I was like, definitely, I think they want you to question her motivations through a lot of it. Like how much is she really doing this to help, you know, her friend's brother? How much is she like caught in this kind of almost addictive cycle with trying to get closer to her mother? How much Mm -hmm. is she willing to look past because she so desperately wants to believe that her mother was, you know, did not kill herself. Um, I thought that was really, really interesting. Definitely had me points like, oh no, no, don't go, you know, like don't trust her. Um, but definitely understand, you know, why she would want to believe this person who at least appears to be the ghost of her mother. Is she really? I mean, that's another thing, you know, our, I think my partner interpreted that, this as like, oh no, that's not even her mother. That is like someone just like wearing her skin. Um, yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. is that something she is more gullible toward, she is more likely to believe because of her grief. Um, or I think my interpreter's more, interpretation was more like, oh, her mom's just gone like full devil, <laughs> you know, like is her mom like no longer the person she remembers? Um, so like definitely like playing with all that aspect of like what is real, what, um, you know, based on our experiences and our traumas, what are we more inclined to believe? Um, I thought that was really interesting. And purgatory. I felt like there, even though there's, it's not religious and knowing our characters' religions, I thought like there was a lot about... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, almost Dante's Inferno. Like it was mm-hmm. very, the scene with um, 
the devilish spirits capturing the boy and then like mm -hmm. the fires of hell. It was very, is Mia like in a purgatory state? Like where are these spirits trapped? It was so like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like your most favorite mm -hmm. gothic or horror film, like where did you place this? Oh gosh, like I have to admit, like I'm a little bit, I, I am a, I know, I think you were like, this is better than Midsummer. I'm a little bit of an Ari Aster girly and that may make me a little bit basic. Um, for me, Hereditary is the one that hit me the hardest. Cause I think to me mm -hmm. that hit on a very specific like Catholic guilt torture. <laughs> Mm. Um, where to me, I ended that movie being like, oh, thank God, it's only Satan, you know? <laughs> like for me, like the the really painful part of that was the specific fact that the the son was responsible for his sister's death and like him living with that guilt to me was so much harder to sit with for those mm. long, slow takes <laughs> than it was once the supernatural stuff started kicking in. I was almost relieved when things started going like truly devilish. Um, mm. So for me, just in terms of my particular history, like shame and guilt are just gonna hit me real hard. So that's always gonna be, I think my tops for that one. Um, I did think like I was super engaged um, with Talk To Me. I think you probably land about like an eight for me. So like doesn't hit my specific triggers, which is not its fault, but it was definitely like a really fun ride and really compelling. Yeah, and I definitely thought that um, I haven't been a fan of recent slasher films. Mm. Like, I mean, my favorite is always going to be the first Halloween just because mm. it was groundbreaking. And mm -hmm. I am covering Scream here on the podcast. And I Scream is just that first. Again, mm -hmm. there's like, I like when it just defines the genre. Like it does something innovative. And I will say, I, I think you're right. I think Hereditary really hit up dried i would say hereditary and talk to me would be great together like they're good mm -hmm. companions like mm -hmm. they are doing something new right now and you're right the mom i thought the mom was probably the most frightening character in talk to me like mm -hmm. yeah again like there was spine tingling moments inside of myself when i would just mm -hmm. watch that's what i like in a horror movie though i want that like entering into your soul of what is Mia staring at? Like, what mm -hmm. is this character? It's not a jump scare because it lingers in the mm -hmm. frame of the camera, right? It's mm -hmm. you trying to analyze the psychology behind it. And I think it's really hard to do that in a horror movie. And that's mm -hmm. why not there's a lot of cheesy horror movies um, because yeah. it doesn't capture the spine tingling sense of, yeah. right? And that's not horror, really. Sorry, that's... Uh, like fear-based. Yeah, I mean, I think horror is, I think, one of my favorite genres, even though I actually haven't watched a ton of it. So like, I'm by no means like a horror aficionado. Like, I feel like, I don't know, I have, I have a friend, um, Carling, who is like, you know, watches all the things. And I feel like when you're a true aficionado, um, you know all the tropes, you can really get very granular about them. For me, I actually kind of like them, one, because I'm a little scary cat. So like, even I think the worst horror movie, I'm going to get a lot of entertainment value out of because like, I'm afraid of a jump scare in and of itself. Like the cheapest, dumbest jump scare will still spook me because I'm afraid of things jumping out at me <laughs> a very, on a very basic level. Um, but two, I find them really, really interesting on a filmmaking perspective because they were a genre that is intrinsically, um, to me, it's all about visual problem solving. 
right? Like it is a genre that kind of by nature, you have to use really, really minimal to no CG because it's all about kind of having that verisimilitude. And so you can't have, you know, your Marvel movie with, you know, these giant crazy special effects everywhere because intrinsically people know that it's not real. So you have to find ways to scare people using real things. Imagine that you're riding the Turner Classic movie, Great Movie Ride, in Hollywood Studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz, where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the Great Movie Ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly. The list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. I am here with the co-owner of one of my favorite stores here in Port Jefferson Village, New York. It is called The Soapbox. So Janine said, Andrew, I have these four products you need to get your hands on. It's called Four for Fall. So she's going to go over these four products. I know first you have a soap for me. What is the soap? I, do. I have a soap for you. It is called Apple Cider Shea Butter Soap. It's by a company called Greenwich Bay. And this is a great soap because you can use it for your hands or your body. And it has a delicious apple cider scent. And I think you're actually already familiar with it. Yes, it is Try in it. my shower. I still have it. It lasts a very long time. Yeah, great lather. The lather is wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's just so luxurious. And I love the scent into November. Yes. You know, this apple cider just it evokes so many cozy feelings. Oh. After the soap, we have something that you can add on to yes. in the shower. So what is this? This is a wonderful, wonderful um, exfoliating shower scrub. It is by a company called Primal Almonds, and it's a sugar whip shower scrub. And the scent is pumpkin spice. It's a moisturizing sugar scrub. So it's tiny little sugar granules. And it's something that you would use after you shower twice a week because you don't want to strip your skin of your natural um, oils and your your moisture but it's wonderful it just really exfoli exfoliates all that dead skin and leaves your skin very smooth and soft from all the um the sugar so after i use the exfoliant right now we need to moisturize so yeah. i know you have a really nice fall body lotion for us absolutely um this is just such a delicious scent this is one of my favorites for fall it is the scent is orchard breeze and it's by a company called Michelle Design Works. 
Um, this is another product that you can use hand or body, hand and body. Um, it's great. You can place it um, on your vanity, just a couple of pumps for your hands or use it on your entire body, but it's shea butter based. So it's extremely moisturizing. Um, it's, it's just wonderful. And the scent is just lovely. We need something more deep for our face. Everyone yeah. wants face masks. And I know that you absolutely love this company and this brand. This is one of my favorite masks by one of my favorite companies that we carry and we support. The company is called Farmhouse Fresh and they're right out of Texas. The mask is called Splendid Dirt and it's a nutrient rich mud mask. Um, it consists of pumpkin puree and the benefits of this mask, uh, it's a pore minimizer, a radiance booster and a skin degunker. So it's an all around great mask. If you really want a boost of radiance, it brightens your skin and it really cleanses your pores. If they live on Long Island or near Long Island, you know, what is your address uh, for them to come into the store? We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson, New York, right in the village. Um, and if you can't make it, you have to come in because we just have so much fun stuff in here. So many wonderful products. Um, but if you can't make it in, please give us a call. We're more than happy to um, ship any of these wonderful, all any of these wonderful products to you. Um, uh, call us at 631-509-1424. You could always um, reach us on Instagram at the Soapbox NY, or you could always um, check us out on our website, Soapbox NY. Um, and yeah, there's so many ways to access your so products. Ways to reach us. And Janine is more than happy. And Mariana, the <laughs> other co-owner. My mom, actually. Yes. yes my mother. Are so willing to take your orders yes. via phone, via Instagram. And I can't wait for everyone else to enjoy these luxurious products. And you're also competing with every other person who's ever done it. So you have to work with this relatively small range of, you know, uh, you know, ways of cutting, ways of showing things, ways of revealing things um, in ways that are somehow still innovative within the limited tools that they have. So I often find when I'm watching a horror movie, even though I am extremely scared the entire time, um, I find it very grounding to like put on my film hat and be like, okay, you know, like there's only so many ways they can cut to reveal this thing. What are they going to go with? Because there's a limited number of, you know, film language is a naturally limited thing. And so there's only so many things they can do. And once they do it once, they probably can't do it again because it's going to have a diminishing return, you know? So I'm always yeah. so fascinated with, you know, how are they going to reveal this? How will they manage to make it scary? Because it's that line between scary and cheesy is so razor thin, you know? Um, yeah. So, and yeah. Did, did you end up seeing A Haunting in Venice? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, okay. So mm -hmm. I covered it with my mom. Mm -hmm. It's already out on the podcast. Uh, and not my favorite. I'll okay. put that out there. Okay. I mm -hmm. love a good murder mystery, but I mm -hmm. like a murder mystery in the sense of... Um, like Clue as a parody, I thought was amazing. Well, Clue is just a cult mm -hmm. classic in my opinion, but but there's some murder mysteries that I think really it's a good novel genre. I think murder mystery, I would say, is even harder now to mm. pull off than a psychological horror film. I feel mm. like murder mystery can instantly become cheesy, and mm. that's kind of my. Even though I love watching these Kenneth Branagh, Agatha Christie films, yeah. I feel that as an expiration date, unfortunately, as a film, 
Mm -hmm. uh, and my, well, you'll have to give me your opinion after you say it, Sage, but well. <laughs> um, I feel that they try to play around too much with, is this a horror film or is this a murder mystery film? Mm -hmm. And it ends up diluting, like there's a, when Michelle Yeoh is on screen, it's my favorite part because mm -hmm. I thought Michelle Yeoh's character was the most frightening yeah. um, as a, like the seance medium. Mm -hmm. But then um, Michelle Yeoh, let me just say, quickly disappears from the <laughs> film, uh, which I thought was not unfortunate in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And it, it just was not going into the horror mm -hmm. angle. Like, because then, right... Hercule Perot is then mm -hmm. using his deductive skills and said, well, this is fake. That's fake. And I'm like, wait, yeah. now you, yeah, I can't wait for you to see it. But I thought that that's where talk to me did a really good job. In my opinion is Mia's father, I thought was really complex. That's where it reminded me of the sixth sense. Cause have you mm -hmm. seen the sixth sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So you remember that scene in the sixth sense where, um, uh, the boy is in his tent all the time. And there's that moment where he thinks it's his mother in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. That's one of my most horrifying, in my opinion, that mm -hmm. is probably the most scary spine tingling uh -huh. moment. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of like that where you think that there's a familial comfort. I think anytime uh -huh. they try to do the, oh, this is your family connection and mm -hmm. you're so... You you trust your father, you trust your mother, and then you're like, wait, who is this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> who is the spirit? Like that is right more frightening to me than the um, you know, knock on the door and there's people in masks, even though that's scary, but it's like it's not your family member turning on you. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. yeah, I mean, I think in a way, like that is probably to me, it would seem like that is kind of their their solution for replacing the religiosity element. Where mm -hmm. I think intrinsically, you know, if you've just got, you know, an outsider who is, you know, how you have no relation to, there's only so much scary you can get out of that. You can get like, a, you know, again, you can get the jump scare, like, ooh, a scary thing, but you're not going to get kind of that deeper psychological element. Um, yep. And again, you know, tying it briefly back to Jekyll and Hyde, if it was just, oh, a random evil person is possessing me, that's yeah. less compelling than like, oh, this is an intrinsic part of me that I'm now becoming aware of. And I yep. think you know, the equivalent of that is, you know, that's why it, it you know, drawing on a family relationship is so powerful um, because, you know, every, everyone has a complicated relationship with their parents and it's very easy to be, to, to put yourself in that space. Like, oh, what if that, you know, was my dad? What if that was my mom? Um, you know, what would I do, you know, if I, if I thought that one was going to betray me and one, you know, I wanted to protect. Um, and I think definitely this question of, you know, like, is, uh, and it also goes into that space of like kind of like doppelgangers with the father of, you know, who is really the dad who is impersonating, who can you really trust? And it's kind of very, very quickly just unravels your entire sense of self, you know, um, and not to get into spoiler territory with Talk to Me, but I think what happens with the dad um, really reminded me of um, the film Oculus. Have you seen it? No, no, I'll have to add it to my list. Yeah, I mean, that very much plays with, it's about like, um, technically it's a, it's a film about a haunt an evil mirror but um, it's very good um, where it is a film that is kind of told in and out of time where these characters um, had a traumatic incident that happened in their childhoods when their parents are still alive and now as adults they're trying to go back 
and to uh, try and uh, defeat the haunted mirror that caused the whole thing. Um, but it's a tricky mirror um, and starts playing with time. They start losing track of where they are in time um, and it just really disorients them and gives them an unclear idea of like what they're doing. It makes it so they can't trust their own actions, their own judgment. And I feel like that was very much something they were playing with and talked to me as well. Yeah. And, you know, as we wrap up, I will say my hot take on what I didn't like and talk to me was um, that mother, not Mia's mother, but I forget the name of the other mother where mm. it was um, zero to a hundred. I'm like, mm. there were moments where I just felt in this script, like, again, they're making her into this authoritative parent but then he's like no Mia come back to the hospital I really missed you and I'm like um oh, but yeah again, I think yeah I think we literally had that exact reaction as we were watching like oh oh she's fine now okay like, yeah that, that but then I'm also like, like little, mm -hmm. it, I was like is this because Mia again we have to question her as a character like she mm. didn't know what the mother actually said to her in her state of mind again I I, I feel know. like that's a very generous reading. I get the feeling that's a little bit like, mm, I would have notes on that. I think personally, like I would have softened her in the initial reaction to the brother getting attacked so that we could believe that she would forgive her or at least like the point is you need to create a situation in which she is being left alone with the brother, right? And so I'm like, mm, let, let's retrofit that and make sure that actually lines up. Um, but yeah, definitely again, broadly speaking, um, there's a there is so much in that space where it's like what is going on what is true who do we believe um, that I can definitely see that interpretation as well yeah but I did think that for teens it's probably mm -hmm. my favorite teen horror like them all cohesively working together as mm -hmm. actors like mm -hmm. I did believe that these were friends like they were all yeah. connected because you know sometimes it can feel very forced like mm -hmm. oh um you know uh I have a grievance against you or I'm going to storm out because you're trying to take my man. Like I actually mm -hmm. did believe these dynamics and that's hard to put off, pull off while you're also not trying to go into the Degrassi drama route. You're trying to go into the horror route and it's hard mm -hmm. to play that as an actor. So I thought, and it was in Australia, which I thought they did an excellent job with like, Oh, we should end on the kangaroo. They have some questions about, um, that kangaroo scene, I did think it was interesting how it full circled, made its mm -hmm. way into like Mia never put the kangaroo out of its misery, quote unquote, for yeah. dying. And then like, that's where I say us thinking about life versus death. Like there is this in-between liminal space, like mm -hmm. of suffering. And that's where I felt like there's that moment. There's... um like the body's burning in hell moment. There's Mia herself in purgatory-ish. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of that in between. And that's where I thought it was like the sixth sense because it's like mm -hmm. the in between. You don't know what's actually life and what's death. It's, mm -hmm. that's the ghost story, right? Is you're supposed to be in between the worlds. Yeah. Um, I think what was definitely interesting about the kangaroo scene to me is like, I was expecting, because the, the point of that scene is that she can't, bring herself to put this dying career uh, career <laughs> that was a weird slip um dang dying kangaroo out of its misery um and i was like oh, okay so maybe the lesson she has to learn is to like to have to make that difficult decision um so like i was i was expecting based on that that you know oh she's gonna have to kill this innocent kid in order to you know set his soul free um but i think that's not the direction they want which i 
what I thought was very interesting. Um, and oh yeah, to- what happens? Ooh. Yeah, um, but um, to your point um, about you know the realism of the kids, um, one aspect that I really liked um, is also Ryan did this did remind me a little bit of Midsommar of exploring that that space when you are in grief and other people are trying to sort of manage you, you know, and you hear this kind of over very early in the film, you hear them kind of talking to each other, um, the the friends of our main character about how like, ah, she's become kind of clingy and depressed and they're feeling a little bit put off by her, but not like openly rejecting her. I thought that felt pretty, you know, pretty realistic that our main character is aware that she has become, that she now, that she's being perceived as a burden by others. And that's what motivates her to, you know, be one of the fun kids who's going to, you know, do the fun possession game, even if it's completely ill-advised. I feel like that, because like inevitably as a viewer, you're kind of like, don't grab that hand. What are you doing? What are you talking about? So I think giving her this motivation of wanting to prove herself to these new friends to prove that she's not a burden and that she can be quote unquote fun was a really mm-hmm. interesting motivation to her getting into this in the first place. Yeah, I will say, um, and right, this will end us with the glass scientists is I have a whole scheme here, but mm-hmm. <laughs> the opening scene of a horror movie to me is so incredibly tricky it Mm. is i think of any genre of movies it is the most important like Mm. i will say i was not a fan of talk to me's opening i thought it was Mm. way too quick i'm like whoa like okay we're gonna get it all at the beginning um Mm. or like halloween i mean that opening sequence scream with drew barrymore Mm. come on I mean, like that is what makes Scream so fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. With Midsummer, oh my gosh, that opening—I think that's one of the that's most frightening, deeply traumatizing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so traumatizing. Um, uh, and yeah, but it it causes that title of Midsummer to come up after you've just witnessed that account mm-hmm. of being in the audience thinking. What did I just see? Like, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what you want to see in a horror movie. I thought here, mm, it didn't exactly, mm. it didn't hit me the same way. But all of that to say, yeah. I want to know, like, how do you approach in The Glass Scientist? Mm-hmm. Like, especially, especially because, like, you have this bridge between young adult and adult with your graphic novel readership. Mm-hmm. How do you approach just, like, how I'm going to open up my com- my graphic novel? How... I'm going to capture the audience's attention. Yes, I feel like a cold open is like such an important storytelling technique. It's really setting expectations for the audience. It's doing so much of, um, it's, it's, it's doing all the big reveals. Um, I think, you know, as a visual storyteller, I'm very interested in reveals, how things are shown for the first time and how they're framed and presented. Um, one can be super, super fun, but I think it also really sets your expectations, like I said, for the story. Um, so from a, way before I started the story, even before I outlined it, I knew how I wanted to open The Glass Scientist with this really fun introduction to the world to get it from Hyde's perspective. So kind of to flip it on, you know, flip the story on a little bit on its head. So like, oh, you're expecting Dr. Jekyll first. We're going to meet Mr. Hyde first, actually, um, before getting to this, you know, fun action sequence with this werewolf to kind of, you know, show that like, there's going to be some fun action here. There's going to be, you know, this and that and really show like the range of the tones that we're going to get. Um, but the main centerpiece that I really wanted to focus on was this really big 
um, build up and reveal to Dr. Jekyll to let us really get to know this character and to be hopefully be very dazzled by him. Um, I think a lot of adaptations of Jekyll and Hyde, and again, this goes back to very early adaptations, take a very kind of Hamlet-esque um, inspiration from him, which is a departure from the book, um, that a lot of adaptations have him as this very kind of tragic, tortured character who's just uh, who's just upset by absolutely everything. Um, he's very uh, kind-hearted, but also very either naive or just like, you know, innocent to a fault of the world's mm -hmm. evils and desperately wants to solve them. Um, and I want to do a really, really different take on him where in a way it's, it's a little bit the opposite of that, where instead of being this like vulnerable Hamlet-esque tragic figure, um, we meet him and he is at the top of his game. He has that mask perfectly set. He is, you know, polished. He is gentlemanly. He is perfect. He smells nice. Um, he is just a dazzling figure. Um, and then we're going, that's gonna be my setup to slowly just tearing him down over the course of this entire story. Um, I've kind of described it as like, Jekyll is like a wonderful little nut and you are the monkey who wants to get into that perfect little nut and find the juicy innards inside. Um, mm -hmm. So that was really my main intention with that opening was to really, um, to really set up this really compelling, um, but kind of impossible man that we're gonna be spending the rest of our story with. Well, and you do such a good job, Sage, and I can't wait for everyone out there. I have a link in the show notes for The Glass Scientist, Volume 1. Um, your artistry is so wonderful, and I want everyone to know, where can they follow you, Sage, on social media? Right, so um, I am um, at Arethusa on social media. That's a little hard to spell, so I'll spell it for y'all. Um, it's A-R-Y-T-H-U-S-A. Um, and also when you finish Glass Scientist Volume 1, um, it actually is continued because it began its life as a webcomic and it's still actually still ongoing. We have a pretty robust community of readers online um, and you can find that at theglassscientists.com. Wonderful. Well, Sage, your work is just so exciting. I loved our conversation. Um, and like I said, um, all of their links are in the show notes. Thank you for joining me, Sage, and enjoy spooky season. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm gonna, of I'm course. I'm going to have a pumpkin spice latte now. So. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> On that note, bye, everyone. Bye. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. I want to thank you so much for listening to the ITBR and TCIA episodes. Make sure if you don't, Follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you follow ITBR on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and TCIA on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime and Academia. Also, we have a brand new Patreon membership system. So I just want to explain it to you all quickly. So if you want to become an ITBR student, it is $5 a month. You get ad-free ITBR and TCIA episodes and video interviews. If you want to become an ITBR professor for $10 a month, you get all of those ad-free benefits, but you also get access to both the ITBR and TCIA book clubs. You can join both book clubs, get ad-free episodes, plus you're going to get all of our extra video episodes. So I am re-watching Queer as Folk. Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema is joining us, and he's re-watching Smash. Um, 
Mary is going to start to rewatch shows as well. You even get access to what I'm calling the ITBR teaches. So if I'm recapping a movie or a TV show, including Barbie, um, Halloween movies and horror films, you get access to that as well. And then I also am offering consultation services. So for $30, you get your first initial consultation with me. It's a one hour private Zoom. I will help create a, your podcast, your media brand. How do you navigate academia as an undergrad or a grad student? Do you need help with technology? It could be teaching tools, Spotify for podcasters, video editor so software. Do you want to expand your social media presence as an artist, writer, podcaster, or academic? Do you want help on how to create a public humanities identity like I've created for myself? So I now I'm offering that consultation service. You can find more info about it on Patreon. And you also can join our book clubs. If you want to just join the ITBR book club or the TCIA book club, you can do that for $4 a month. Patreon.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. That is P A T R E O N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thanks to the team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor. And thank you to our two new interns from Stony Brook University, Jonathan and Sarah. Bye, everyone. Until next time.